Dr. Morton and I sat down and spoke at length about the NAMI lab experience here at the University of Utah. Dr. Morton actually got into medical school, but however chose to pursue a PhD in anatomy and now has fallen in love with his job. We talk about what medical students can do to prepare for their NAMI lab experience and what lies ahead in the future for changes for the NAMI lab program. Helping you prepare for one of the most rewarding careers in the world. This is Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with your host, the Dean of Admissions at the University of Utah School of Medicine, Dr. Benjamin Chan. Well, welcome to another edition of Talking Admissions and Med Student Life. This is Dr. Chan, and I've got a great guest today, Dr. David Morton. Now, I remember Dr. Morton from my days when I attended the University of Utah School of Medicine um, and how I think you were a TA mm-hmm. back in those in days, r- roughly 10 years ago or so. Uh, but now you're a full-on professor. So, Dr. Morton, want to go ahead and introduce yourself and how you fit in here at the University of Utah School of Medicine. So, uh, thanks. It is very cool to be here. Thank you. I uh, Yeah, I, I currently uh, serve as an associate professor in the Department of Neurobiology and Anatomy, but um, shortly after uh, finishing graduate school and interviewing around the country and um, accepting a position here, which I was my number one choice. Uh, shortly after that, took over the gross anatomy course and have been teaching gross anatomy and histology and recently neuroanatomy and uh, to first, second year med students, fourth year med students, and do residency training and all things anatomy yeah. and cadaver lab. You are the man for anatomy. So I'm yes, an a one of the individuals for anatomy. Yes. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Well, you know, Doctor Morton, like one of the things I'm trying to do with this podcast is educate all the listeners about med school and and you know give them tips for applying and, and mm-hmm. things like that and give them like kind of a glimpse of what goes on inside the University of Utah School of Medicine. But I know you have a compelling story and I know you've shared that in the past and and can you just share that with us. You know, how did you come to the decision to become an anatomy professor? And was there any discussion of other choices in the past of Great. what kind of career you were going to have? Yeah, so I was, um, I always knew I wanted to go into healthcare of some sort mm-hmm. since I was a kid. So I went to college, and my roommate, first thing he said is, You got to take gross anatomy. So my first year of uh, college, I took anatomy in the cadaver lab, and it was, ended up being the, my. Uh, my most favorite of all classes I took in, in university and fell in love with it. And so I took the class, became a TA for the class, ended up taking a position to direct the cadaver labs, and uh, it was uh, just loved it. And then when I was applying to medical school, um, as a backup, I'd applied to master's programs in anatomy in case I didn't get in right mm-hmm. away or um, as basically a backup plan. Uh, when all the dust settled... Um, I had offers from a medical school and two master's programs with scholarships trying to determine which one to do. And I decided, you know, I'll do graduate school. There's a project here at the University of Utah to somehow create a dissection guide that fit a, a truncated curriculum in anatomy. And I thought, I've always wanted to do that. I love anatomical, I love drawing anatomy uh, illustrations, and I love teaching. I thought, oh, I could do that for two years and then go to med school, because med school's there every year. And then after that, working with my department chair and uh, Dr. Parks and my mentor at the time, Dr. Kurt Albertine, determined, let's turn this into a PhD project, continue forward. And at that point, I was already in my 30s and thought, you know, teaching, truth be known, is what I've always wanted to do anyways. That's your passion. It really is. Mm -hmm. I. I feel very fortunate to have a job that I, I look forward to every morning I wake up. And so uh, as a result, when we decided to do the PhD, my wife and I decided, well, 
let's do graduate school instead. And then I've just gone forward and never looked back. Okay. So. That's excellent. And can you tell me a little bit the history of anatomy? Cause I remember, I, I remember you had a very, you had a very fascinating story about where anatomy has come from. Mm-hmm. Can you tell, talk to the listeners a little about that? And yeah. How certainly. anatomy has progressed over the, the centuries, I guess, and how, yeah. how, how it's gone to where it's now. It's an interesting thing because I think of my job, the person, if you were to take the position that I'm in now and go back 120 years, that individual in many of the schools of medicine in the United States and in uh, the United Kingdom, they were partially criminals in <laughs> what they did, and they the way that they the way that they had to procure cadavers for their program very different than what we have today. And now, we're back then, it was looked at as a fiendish thing. Now it is looked at more as not looked at, it is an honor, and and it's more of a, if I could use the word, sacred responsibility, the way that donors are treated, the way that they have this altruistic donation. I believe no no school, whether it's a K-12 university or school of medicine, can function without the generosity of donors. And that's why buildings have names of donors on it, and our streets have names of donors on it. But this is a type of donation that our med students, they can't do anatomy without it. They just never know the names of these individuals. It's Mm -hmm. a very altruistic, anonymous donation. And that the medical students have an opportunity to benefit from having donors donate their own bodies after they pass away for each of our medical students to learn gross anatomy, which no matter how great our technological advances are, the best, still the number one way to learn anatomy. Excellent. And so, you know, I heard people say, like, you know, when I pass away, I'm going to donate my body to science. Is there actually a specific form or is there a box I need to check for them to actually, you know, wind up like Mm -hmm. within the, you know, the gross anatomy lab or be part of the cadaver service? Or how does that process work? So in our our driver's license, often you can put a check that says I want to donate organs and tissues. This Mm -hmm. is very different because this is something you go through our body donor program. Okay, there's a program. Yeah. And so anyone who goes to the Department of Neurobiology and Anatomy, our website, there's a whole section on body donation. Carrie Peterson has been directing the program for almost 30 years, Um, a fantastic individual who also teaches in our anatomy lab. He's Mm -hmm. not only a great director of the body donor program, Mm -hmm. he's an exceptional anatomist. Mm -hmm. And uh, so individuals then contact the program and they go through the legal paperwork in order to donate Mm -hmm. so that after they have passed away and family um, arrangements have been made, then their body is brought to the University of Utah and then used in education and research and so forth. And then, uh, correct me if, my, if I'm wrong, but isn't there some type of service at the end of the anatomy? Yes. After the gross dissection, which we'll talk about shortly, mm-hmm. isn't there some type of service for the family members? Yes, okay. it happens every May. So okay. every May, the Friday before Memorial Day, at 11 a.m. in the cemetery just in the avenues beside the University of Utah. And it's the only time that medical students, faculty, and families of donors are in the same place at the same time and have a chance to talk together. And it's a, um, it's a really beautiful service. And it's really... Uh, a beautiful service after the med students have been through dissection, um, after they've done, some of them, many of them have done some research dealing with cadavers. We always have clinicians who are doing research and surgery, um, emergency medicine, and then family members in the same area. There's this open mic portion for about 20 or 30 minutes, and it's 
beautiful. Okay, that's wonderful. Yeah. And do the med students know at that time if like those family members were related to their body, or is that information still kind of kept from them? For the most part, it's kept from them. And okay. I say for the most part, because occasionally uh, people will uh, request or a donor request that something remain with that individual, either a flower or a plant. And that's the only way that okay. they would ever put It's never by a name. Mm-hmm. They'll say we, um, um, the individual we worked with in the lab um, had this certain mm-hmm. flower. And this has only happened a few times. So I make a me-, me saying this sounds like it happens all the time. It's very rare okay. that it ever happens. Usually that is still unknown between mm-hmm. both parties. Yeah. I think that's very beautiful, Dr. Morton. I don't think a lot of people realize the amount of care and respect that goes into these bodies, even after they've gone through the lab. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to have kind of that closure of, a, of another ceremony at the end to bring all these different people together whose lives have been touched beneficially by mm-hmm. that individual's yeah. body and choices and everything from there. Yeah. Yeah. There's some of the research that we've been doing lately um, with regards to what benefit does the cadaver, do cadavers have in med student education. One of the things, in addition to learning anatomy, all the quantitative elements of learning thousands of anatomical parts and the way they fit together, is the respect gained from having their first patient that they've been entrusted with um, the way that they treat this individual and the feeling of awe and respect that comes is very real and tangible. And this has been demonstrated now with, with uh, discussing this with alumni from the university that go back 50 years into our most recent uh, incoming classes. Oh, excellent. So, yeah, let's talk about the incoming class. And, mm-hmm. you know, like the question I get the most um, as dean of admissions is people get into our medical school, they're very excited, and that – the months leading up to starting med school, there's a lot of anxiety. Mm-hmm. And this anxiety is usually really focused on the NAMI lab. And I think, as you mentioned, you know, there's an eclectic blend of students when they start medical school. A lot of them have been uh, TAs in anatomy class. A lot of them have a lot of experience taking anatomy. A lot of our students don't when they first start. So the number one question I always get, I always get this, is that, Dr. Chan, you know, I, I got into med school. I'm excited. I'm very nervous about the gross anatomy. Should I take gross anatomy, you know, during the summer before med school starts? So, Dr. Martin, what would you say to that? And what tips would you give to people who are, you know, unfamiliar, uncomfortable with starting in the gross anatomy lab? That's a really good question. My personal opinion, when I get this question as well, if people say, should I take a summer anatomy class, a summer before med school, my personal answer is always, go to Europe. Go camping. Go do something. I like to tell people to go to Central America. So, yeah, Central <laughs> okay. America. Okay. Go right. somewhere okay. fun. Okay. Right. You know, do yeah. something. However, right. in stating that, I know they don't want to hear that. Okay. Um, in that... Uh, can I uh, preface this by some research that we're currently doing that isn't complete, but some of the preliminary data may be helpful for students in this. We've been surveying for now four years our incoming students and what experience they've had in anatomy prior to starting med school and then tracking how they perform in anatomy and at the end of Foundations of Medicine, the first four months of med school, and how they do. And demonstrated that the only difference with regards to how they perform in anatomy is on practical exams in the cadaver lab, which makes sense. They're used to working with cadavers and being tested in this fashion. Statistically speaking, there was not 
difference between people who had had anatomy and who had not and how they perform in anatomy. Now, in stating that, all the scores for people who had had anatomy before were always higher, and those who had not were always lower. But when you put it all together, and we think part of this may be that we just don't have a large enough still student's numbers to Mm -hmm. crunch the data, but med students are very smart. They always rise to the level of what they are, uh, the rigor, the academic rigor. The one thing, however, we are understanding is that the amount of difficulty it takes a student to get to that level of understanding of anatomy, if you've not had it before, they expend far more energy than those who have had it. I encourage, and so in stating this, if you then say, I've not had anatomy, am I going to do okay? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We've showed four years now in a row that, yeah, if you've had anatomy or not anatomy, you're going to do great. You guys are really bright. That's why you got into med school. However, you're going to work really hard. And anatomy is like a language. If you've learned another language before, it doesn't matter if you're the brightest person in the world. You can't cram a language. You can't cram 4,000 words of vocabulary in conjugating these verbs. You can't cram 4,000 words of anatomy and how they relate with physiology, biochem, embryology, and clinical medicine. So the more jargon and anatomy terminology you know before coming to med school, the better off you will be and the more pleasant foundations of medicine those first four months are going to be. So my, incur- my, my advice has always been take anatomy in undergrad. I know it's not a prerequisite, but take it. It makes those first four months And even the succeeding months and the rest of uh, up and leading to the clerkships, that foundation of anatomy will always be beneficial. Not only just the jargon, but just how the body fits together. But if you just never had that opportunity and never fit into the schedule, you're going to do grand. Mm -hmm. I like what you're saying, Dr. Morton. So let's pretend, though, that I'm going to a school where they offer, they don't have a human anatomy lab, but they offer like a zoology anatomy Mm -hmm. lab. Would you still say that's beneficial to learn that vocabulary? Uh, and just getting the experience of dissection, or would you like? Would you recommend like holding out until you have ox- opportunity to maybe take a, a human anatomy course? Yeah. Any any type of anatomical okay. course is beneficial. Okay, and that's something we actually have demonstrated that um, even though there was not so far in the study statistical significance, if they've had any type of anatomy, even comparative anatomy okay. classes, and in many cases even just a zoology vertebrate class on vertebrates, it's beneficial because so much of the anatomical terminology and structure is similar between vertebrates. We mm-hmm. very much encourage people to do that. Okay, And then when you start the gross dissection, kind of moving into the first couple of weeks, mm-hmm. um, it kind of starts on the outside moving in, mm-hmm. obviously the dissection method. How does how is the NAMI lab set up here at the University of Utah School of Medicine? How many students do you have to a body? What's the schedule like? How is okay. that kind of determined? So cadaver lab happens every Wednesday morning from the middle of August until the couple of weeks before Christmas time in that ballpark. Every Wednesday morning from 8 a.m. till noon is dissection. We have have 31 cadavers, um, four, mostly four students per cadaver. There's a few that have five students per cadaver. They come in every day at 8 a.m., and they have a practical quiz on the previous dissection, uh, the material from the previous week's dissection, usually 10 very straightforward, 10 pins, takes less than 10 minutes to review it in the room with all the TAs. Then I'll go over the speaker around 8.20 in the morning and walk everyone through the dissection guide and with pictures and um, uh, some suggestions on how to make the dissection s- flow smoothly. So by 8.30... 
maybe 835 the latest, everyone has been tested on the previous week's material. They've reviewed it. They have instructions on how to move forward. Mm -hmm. And then they've got the rest of the morning to dissect. Then we have at least two, if not three, and sometimes four teaching assistants or faculty within the rooms. They're kind of floating. Floating in between. So there is always, we have at least two um, people in every designates every room, and then I have another six to eight that float between our five cadaver labs. There's five different rooms okay. named after famous anatomists, and there is plenty of help. And so, if there's ever a time that a student looks up and says, "I need help," they'll never have to wait more than sixty seconds to have someone there to help them find a structure or walk them through a challenging dissection. Okay, fantastic. And do you randomly assign the students to the bodies, or do you try to like mix and match those who have had experience with anatomy in the past and those who have not? How is that set up? We've actually done it all of the above, what oh, you okay. mentioned over right. the years. And what we found is it doesn't matter. Okay, Students rise to the level mm-hmm. of what's expected of the medical students, very bright and very ambitious and hard workers. And what we found is now they're just randomly assigned Mm -hmm. to cadavers and they stay with the same cadaver throughout foundations of medicine up until uh till the end of this phase of their Mm -hmm. curriculum they stay with the same dissection group so they have the same cadaver the same dissection group they learn great people skills Mm -hmm. team-based learning skills all those important things that we need in our future physicians all of them yeah and i know a lot of the students and there's a code to get into the nami lab correct um, I know a lot of them, you know, sometimes want to do, like, don't get the uh, the dissection completed mm-hmm. all the way they can in the allotted time or need to review before one of these tests. So it sounds like they can go in after hours and yes. keep on working. So. Yeah, they have access, as a matter of fact, up until 11 p.m. at night, which is, this is something that's more of a security issue than anything else, that everything is pretty much locked down, and so including the Cadaver Lab building and Research Park. Mm-hmm. And... But as long as someone's in there, they can dissect to whatever hours they'd like. And so what we found, though, is most students have, and this is what they do, most students have a schedule. They dissect Wednesday morning, and then we have TAs all throughout the rest of the week that are in the lab at various times. So students go in after hours to dissect or to study. Often there will be someone there to help out. Some are mornings, some are evenings, some are um, on weekends, so that there's always someone who could help them at their dissection and that they just get a routine. They say, all right, we dissect Wednesday morning with the whole rest of the class. We're going to go in as well Friday mornings and Tuesday nights. And they have their set time, so they go in to finish dissections, review the study material, and uh, they're not limited Mm -hmm. by the times they can get into the lab. Seven days a week they can get in. And you mentioned practicum tests. Now, if I understand that correctly, that's, you know, you have the cadaver, and then there's usually a pin or some sort of marker attached to a structure or a piece of tissue, and then the students are then asked to identify that. Is that, is that what you mean by practicum? Yeah. Yes. Okay. And we do that every week. And okay. we, one of the philosophies that I have as an educator is that students um, only study what they're tested on. That's what I've kind of come around. And so one of the things that I've realized with anatomy is if they're not assessed on a regular basis, too much material builds up. Mm-hmm. And so what I've done is, Every week, they've got this practical, and it's and they're, they're not hard. These are very straightforward, but it, it helps encourage the students to put the time in to not let two or three weeks build up. So one of the 
uh, main ways that they're assessed are these weekly practical quizzes with pins and the kind of, they come in and pins here and it says identify the artery and they look and say, oh, that's the LAD, write it down and they do 10 questions and they get graded. But every four weeks we do what are called table conferences and table conferences are oral exams where the there's one student in the room so there's usually five or six cadavers in each room one student comes in with a professor like myself and we then have a series of questions and it's an oral exam of now just one-on-one going from cadaver to cadaver and having a chance to ask questions so now they can verbalize the anatomy getting used to speaking it getting used to integrating what they see in a cadaver with a radiographic image or a histological image or something they're learning in clinical medicine. It's a way to try to integrate and verbalize the anatomy they're learning. And I love that. It's actually one of my favorite times because students excel. Because you tie it all together. They do, and they do a fantastic job synthesizing it Mm -hmm. so that there's... So in addition to weekly multiple-choice questions that they get on their Monday tests, in addition to weekly practical quizzes that they get they also have these table conferences so it's a multifaceted way in which students are assessed so students come in and say oh i don't like practical quizzes it's too much pressure they always got multiple choice and they've always got verbal uh way of testing which throughout their life as a medical student resident physician Mm -hmm. they will receive the types of assessment in all of those excellent well dr morton you mentioned radiological images Mm -hmm. and histological (laughs) images how has you know because like there's just so much technology nowadays and i know as an educator it's evolving Mm -hmm. and how do you integrate the different technologies and so i'm just curious like how is that happening in anatomy what what kind of projects are you working on in your anatomy lab and how are you integrating all this new technology so i'm For the cadaver lab, I resisted having technology in the lab for a while because I wanted it to be one of the few places you could go and just be in there dissecting. Mm -hmm. And so now I've I've embraced technology from the early days. I've thought it's a great way of distributing and managing information and learning information. We now have iPads for each table that oh, the wow. med students don't need to bring in. That uh, So we have iPads that have these special covers that are in there so that there's always an iPad for every table the med students go in. We have a digital dissector that students use that walk them through. So that way, if they're going through and they dissect something, this past week we dissected the foregut. So we did stomach and duodenum and liver and pancreas and gallbladder. If they're dissecting and, and they get to the part in their pancreatic duct and they think, pancreas we learned about that in histology lab as a matter of fact exocrine and endocrine tissue let's go look up and so in the digital sector they can go into this anatomy our required text look up histological images and review some of the histology and then go back to anatomy and then they realize okay then there's also these sympathetic nerves that come from the greater splanchnic nerve oh man i can't remember the greater splanchnic nerve so they go back in and they can review greater Mm -hmm. splanchnic nerve and where it comes from and go back to the dissection so very efficient way of looking at information the other way that we're using technology a lot is uh, you could get me going on cadavers forever i no, that's why. That's why I hear Dr. Ward. Yeah, still, yeah. still believe it's the number one way to learn anatomy. However, I recognize that basically after foundations of medicine, after you learn it, with the times if you're going into surgery that you'll use cadavers, the major way that you're going to look at internal anatomy will be through imaging, X-rays, MR, CTs, and so forth. And that way, every week now that medical students have certain regional dissections. This past week, I mentioned we did the foregut. They have an atlas that they're given that has anywhere from 6 to 12 to 15 radiographic images, different axial CTs or axial MRs or radiographs, angiograms that 
go over that demonstrate the anatomy they're learning in dissection, and they have to know that as well. And those images appear on their Monday quizzes. Those images sometimes appear on the practicums, and they definitely appear on the table conferences. So not only are they learning the anatomy in the cadaver, they're now bridging the anatomy to um, two-dimensional axial CT slices at different levels, and they're gaining what I call the radiology eyes. They're starting to recognize mm-hmm. an anatomical structures. So they're not, our goal isn't to make radiologists out of them. Our goal is for them to see normal anatomy in the different modalities of imaging. And by the time they get done phase one, they have a very good foundation of imaging. Yeah. I'm just curious, Dr. Morton, what's, what would you say as a professional anatomist? Am I saying that correctly? Sure. Yeah. What, what is like the most difficult dissection? What is, what is the one the med students kind of struggle with the most or mm-hmm. takes the most skills would you say i mean what's the most challenging thing to teach i guess oh i'd say one of the ones that are three-dimensionally challenging for them the pelvis and perineum is one and head and neck is the other Mm. those are the ones that very small structures so the pelvis and perineum is a three-dimensional uh challenge most people know about it because reproductive system urinary system Mm -hmm. Pretty straightforward. Very straightforward. Yeah. Most people are familiar yeah. with this. Yeah. But the internal anatomy of the way the muscles form and the pelvic floor and the perineal floor, it's got a three-dimensional understanding that's tough. The other one with head and neck is that we're looking for nerves that oftentimes are the thickness of a hair. Mm-hmm. Looking wow. for that corded tympany nerve is very small. Looking for and then understanding the way that different cranial nerves relate to each other, as opposed to finding the sciatic nerve, which is the you know thickness of your thumb, and looking at the corded tympany nerve that's just a little thicker than one of our hairs on our head. And so head and neck is another one. Um, and maybe it's because of head and neck is so challenging that it became my favorite anatomy to go over because it's got so many fun, intricate, clinically-oriented mm-hmm. uh, facets to it. Um, yeah, head and neck's one of my favorite, but that's okay. one of the ones that are more challenging. Right. Excellent. And then, Dr. Morton, I, I, I forgot to mention this before we started this podcast, but one of the things I just remember very dearly, close to my heart, is you had a bunch of mnemonics that really help uh, the med students remember mm-hmm. certain areas of the body. And I remember very distinctly, as a med student, you used to sing songs. You used to bring in your guitar. <laughs> are you still doing that? I am. Okay. So how many different songs have you created? Oh, I've got, you know, and it's, and they're silly songs. <laughs> I um. They're, they're, I'm gonna maybe ask you to do some acapella here. So, uh, the uh, what I when I before coming to graduate before going to here, mm-hmm. I was in. Um, well, I should say r- near the end of college and university, I got this job teaching at a, uh, a night school, mm-hmm. and everyone was full time students or at work, and so they were go to night for three hours, and they were really long classes, and so I was teaching anatomy pathology. So I started writing songs then because it'd break up the monotony of teaching for three hours. And so that kind of came over to med school. And I got songs and reproductive system, the digestive system and skin and so forth. And, and they're, they're silly, but do cover the anatomy of the mm-hmm. stuff that we covered. And um, I, I remember hearing a statistic, which to be honest, I don't even know if it's true, but the philosophy, which is, which I've taken away is people only remember 14 to 17% of what you hear in a 45, 50 minute lecture, which is a little depressing. If you spend sounds very depressing. countless yeah. hours and days constructing, mm-hmm. you, you hope to be the perfect lecture and the perfect interaction with the students and think they're only going to pull away 14 to 17%. So in my mind, I think what can be done to make the information, 
information sticky, that make it a little bit more sticky, maybe push it up to like 20 or 25%. Mm-hmm. And mnemonics are one, analogies, which I use a lot of analogies or another, and songs are another way that I just try to find ways of making information a wee bit more sticky so that a year later, and they think back to all the things we talked about in the lecture, perhaps they'll remember that, hey, white matter in the spinal cord is like a bus and the amount of people that get on and get off. And maybe they'll remember that, and that, that's something they can remember. They might not know all the other intricate details, but that's a sticky piece of information that you then build or wouldn't take long to build other concepts on. Same thing with song. They think, you know, I can't remember everything about the reproductive system. I got two and a half minutes. <laughs> I can a song and yeah. maybe help Well, out, I like so. how you take it to the next level with the huh. guitar. How long have you played the guitar? I was 16. I played duty in Greece in high school, in grade nine, and he had to do this guitar number, and I didn't play guitar. So I was up on stage play, pretending and playing guitar. My music teacher's off stage. I can see him playing. And after that, I thought, that's silly. I'm going to learn guitar. And so, the so, you know what? You know what the song inspired me to play guitar? Simon and Garfunkel called For Emily. Oh, wow. That was the song that That's inspired fantastic. me to play For Emily by Simon Garfunkel, and I played guitar since I was 17. Wow. So you self-taught yourself to play guitar. For the while, and then I got a guitar teacher who was fantastic, and I played quite a bit, and I haven't really improved since I've been 19. So but. if I follow this link, uh, when one of our med students passes anatomy, when they just knock it out of the park, which they always do. You know, our med school mm-hmm. is just known for meds, our students doing really well on the step exams and board exams yeah. when it comes to anatomy. Yeah. They can all trace it back to Greece and Simon <laughs> Garfunkel. Yes, that, exactly. That's the, link. Yeah. That's the take-home message that's the take-home that you message. take home. Yeah. Listen to Greece and Simon yeah. and Garfunkel. So how many songs do you have? Four, five, Four, six. Five. It depends on how I kind of break it Because I know there, there, there's an underground movement for you to release a CD. So, <laughs> right here on this podcast, Dr. Morton. My, uh, my demographics are quite limited. Oh, so, I, but, uh, I, yes, I, I don't uh, think that's true. So. <laughs> so do the students know when you're about to do a song? Or is it just kind of like one of those fun things you... It's you one of those things that I just decide like the morning of usually. Like okay. I threw my guitar in the back of my guitar today because I'm thinking, yeah, maybe I'll do a song on the GI track today because right. I'm in the middle of doing that. And then I'll just decide to do it. And it's, it, again, a way of breaking up often four hours of teaching. And I teach for two hours today, mm-hmm. this afternoon, mm-hmm. on mid-gut, hind-gut, and innervation of the whole GI tract. And so it's a lot of material and sort of break up, and then they have two hours after that. We try really hard because I also direct Foundations of Medicine. We try really hard to never have Okay, never is a strong word. We try very hard to minimize the number of four-hour lectures all in a row. Yeah. We try to always put small group learning sessions, microscope lab, um, uh, things of that to break up an afternoon. But occasionally it happens like today. So those are the days that I kind of looked and say, I think this is a guitar day. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Well, Dr. Morton, you know, I, I think I speak for everyone here at the University of School Medicine. We just think it's a joy to have you here. And uh, you're one of the crown jewels of the first year. And I oh, think very all kind. our med students are very fortunate to have you because, like, even I remember some gross anatomy 10 years later due to, you know, your fantastic teaching. And uh, I just like to thank you for coming on the podcast today. That's very kind. Thanks, Dr. Chan. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with Dr. Benjamin Chan, the ultimate resource to help you on your journey to and through medical school. A production of the Scope Health Sciences Radio, online at thescoperadio.com.